All right, welcome everyone. Um, this is the Medical Liability Minute, and of course it lasts for longer than a minute. My name is Jeff Siegel. I'm the founder and CEO of Medical and Dental Justice, and we're honored today to have as our guest, Dr. Roy Shelburne. We met on the phone several years ago, and I found his narrative absolutely compelling. The tagline on his website has meaning on multiple levels, and he'll do a deep dive and explain to you precisely what I'm talking about. But it's a prisoner set free, prisoner set free. That is, Dr. Shelburne spent time in prison. And I know he chose those words deliberately and carefully. So he had a successful dental practice. I believe he was living the dream, unlike most dentists. He took care of Medicaid patients, many of whom would otherwise have minimal, minimal access to quality dental care. Then he got sucked into a Kafkaesque experience that he was unprepared for. Uh, fast forward, and he was prosecuted for a record-keeping snafu that cost him his freedom. He has since reemerged and is on a mission. So here's, here's a quote from his website. He's seen how the smallest record-keeping mista mistakes can spell doom for a practice and wants to share the insights and wisdom he gained through his experience with the legal system. In other words, how to prosper and avoid being surprised by an aggressive prosecutor and avoid going to prison. So here, here's his um, background from even before that. He graduated with honors from Virginia Commonwealth University School of Dentistry, served as president of Southwestern Virginia Dental Society, and even did short-term missionary work in Honduras. In 2003, the FBI broke down the door to his office and confiscated records. Over the next three years, everything he said and did was scrutinized. In 2006, he was indicted. In 2008, found guilty of healthcare fraud, racketeering, money laundering, etc. He spent 19 months in a federal prison in Kentucky before being released in 2010. He fully concedes that uh, records, billing systems, and coding systems were faulty. Now he speaks and teaches others how to do it right. This is an amazing story, and there's a lot to unpack. Uh, Roy, thanks for, so much for joining us today. And please fill in the blanks on my summary of what you did and what happened to you. I know that's not a bullet point that can be put out in about um, 60 seconds. You're on. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I guess most of the listeners have not heard a bio like that and <laughs> speakers you've, you've had before, and certainly was it would not be one that I, I sought to be able to convey, but it is what it is. Um, I had practiced in a small town in the western part of Virginia for about 27 years, and in fact, my practice was in my grandfather's hardware store building. I'd gone away to college and then to dental school, um, came back, set up my practice, opened in July of um, 1981, and was happy as a clam. Um, I was born and raised there. Unfortunately, western part of Virginia, it was in the southern part of the Appalachian Mountains, very poor area, not a whole lot of industry. So uh, between 90 and 95% of the inhabitants under 18 years of age were covered under Medicaid. And, you know, that was, those were my neighbors. That was my family. And I, uh, I felt it was important to provide care for the people that lived in my area. So the practice was about 50% Medicaid, 50% uh, um, otherwise, and worked there happily for 27 years. I actually flown to California to the American Dental Association meeting in 2003, and I was listening to Rudolph Giuliani speak when my phone began to vibrate during Giuliani's speech, and it was my wife who was calling, and I um, waited for Giuliani to finish, called her. She was actually not at home either. She was visiting my daughter, who was at Virginia Tech at the time, and uh, called her to find out the FBI had come to my office, had battered down the back door, and were taking all my records. Um, I was sitting shocked in that uh, auditorium in California as everybody else filed out. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I was, I was shocked. It, obviously, the wind knocked out of me. As I was sitting there, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and I, I called my office. It was Friday. None of the team was going to be there, so I didn't expect hey, anybody to answer the phone. Roy, just hang yes, on sir. for a second. Did you have any hint that this was going to happen at all? I mean, you were 
happy as a clam and then this happened was there any any interim event that maybe a light bulb went off saying that something may be going on so this was a shock no none none whatsoever um you know as far as any issues with medicaid it never had any and in fact it was never a medicaid issue generally if there's an issue with a provider the it it you're in it's intervened by the Virginia Medicaid um, or state Medicaid group, but no, there was, there was never an issue with Medicaid. And in fact, um, after I was indicted, Medicaid, uh, Darrell Dental, who is Denequest now was the administrator of Virginia Medicaid who processed claims and did reviews. They, during the investigation, after I was indicted, did a, um, audit and the first audit was clean and the government came back and said no you don't understand he's done this this and this he's been indicted we want you to do a more in-depth evaluation and they actually pulled the records from the 15 patients that I had done the most comprehensive work on so pulled from the software the a list of patients from uh, the greatest amount of reimbursement to least in the 15 patients we'd done the most comprehensive work and been paid the most for, they pulled those the second time. And there was a more comprehensive audit done. I think there were three dentists, four hygienists, and some um, business people who reviewed that at Dentequest. Right. And it came back clean. They said they didn't see anything with my submissions or what had gone on that they didn't expect to see in other dentist in other areas. So Medicaid had no issue whatsoever. Um, and the government came back and said, well, you just don't have the expertise we have to go on, go to the depths we've gone to, to determine he's committing healthcare fraud. <laughs> so um, fast forward um, after discovery, well, I was, I was in California and I called my office and like I said, it was Friday. I didn't expect anybody to answer the phone, but Somebody did. The voice on the other end was, hello. I said, hello, who is this? And they said, who's this? And I said, I'm Dr. Shelburne. I, I own the office you're in and the phone you're talking on. Can you tell me what's going on? He introduced himself as an FBI agent and that he had executed a search warrant that I was a target of a healthcare fraud investigation. So flew home, um, was able to get to my office. It was uh, in the evening, it was nine o'clock or so, but I drove past my office. It was surrounded by crime scene tape and there were multiple FBI vehicles surrounding my practice. That was probably and a very long, search- long flight from the West Coast, uh, I'm uh, imagining. Believe me, I, I was, uh, I was in shock. I, you know, it was, it's all a big black hole. Uh, you know, I, I mm-hmm. sat with my head down and I was just trying to figure out what in the world was going on and then driving past my office surrounded by crime scene tape. My practice was in my in the biggest town in the county, and that population was 1800-1800, very small rural area. <clears throat> everybody knew everybody else. And the search and seizure actually was the day before our county's fall festival. So the next day, there were parades through town. There were booths set up on the side of the, the streets, and air practice was the topic of conversation. We were investigated very um deeply for the next three years we were i was indicted um three years and two days after the search and seizure so october of the year i get kind of squirrely because that's when it happened um was prepared for trial for about a year and a half now you were still working um, with an active practice in between them seizing (laughs) records and you being indicted and going to trial or or is that a fallacy no, no, that was that's that's all true. And in fact, the best year I ever had financially was the year after my indictment and before my prosecution. <laughs> Interestingly I, enough, we as dentists we diagnose treatment that we recommend for patients, and for whatever reason they don't accept it, for that year and a half they would come in, and I would go there again. I, I would say, you know, you really need to have this tooth crown. There's an issue with it, and. They would literally be in my chair and they'd go, I know, and I want you to do it. And they would roll back in the chair and look at me and go, and I don't know if you're going to be here or not, so go ahead and do it now. I know you're going to la- I actually know a surgeon that um, had a drug charge. He was 
he was um, going to surrender to go to a federal prison uh, sometime in October. So there was a window of time when he was still out there and he, he still had a license to practice. Um, mm -hmm. And interestingly, um, he'd have people calling and say, Doc, I know you have a commitment um, at the end. And they used a euphemism, some type of commitment at the end of the year. <laughs> Is there any way you can? And I'm on the schedule for the end of the year. Is there any way you can squeeze me in sooner? The point yeah. being is that they, they they trusted him. Nothing changed in the level of trust. And you then start to realize the impact it has on the surrounding community, not just the doctor himself, but the people who work there, the patients who come to see him, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, you, you realize what a, a giant web this creates. And if you were trusted before, you know, most of the people probably still trusted you after. Anyway, keep going. I did, yeah. I did not mean to interrupt. Uh, no, to segue into that, actually, my son graduated from dental school in May when I surrendered my license and went to prison in July and then August. So he had not intended to come back to the practice, but because when I was arrested, I was charged with racketeering and money laundering, which allowed the government to confiscate everything we owned at that point. So could not continue to support my children in their universities, in their, their schools. So he signed an agreement with the state of Virginia agreeing to provide care to the indigent in exchange for um, tuition reimbursement. So he came to my practice and he's there even today. The only complaint has ever been that he's too busy. <laughs> he's, a, he, he's, he's an amazing dentist. He's well, that's positive that you had your family join you, and it sounded like um, that might not have been in the cards otherwise. No, the, the practice would have closed otherwise. The, mm -hmm. You know, we, I tried to market it, tried to sell it beforehand, and of course it's tainted and nobody wanted it. So for all intents and purposes, it was worthless. And the people in the area would have gone untreated during that period because there would be nobody in the area willing or able to be able to take care of them. So the interesting thing was, um, went to trial a year and a half afterward. It was a nine day trial. And I thought it was, there were 118 instances the government brought that could be construed as healthcare fraud and one charge of, of healthcare fraud. So they had 118 attempts to find me guilty, charged with racketeering and money laundering as well, because I was charged with racketeering and money laundering when I was arrested the government confiscated everything we own. So they came with, there were seven officers all together, or eight officers. Um, they came with three flatbed car haulers. They pulled the vehicles out of the garages and uh, out of the garage and put them on flatbeds and took them away. Uh, at the same time I was being arrested, they went to my three children's universities. They confiscated their vehicles as well. Um, they confiscated the contents of all our bank accounts. So we had no money whatsoever. My wife's vehicle was in her names. My children's vehicles were in their names. But because I was charged with money laundering, if you get a cent that you're not entitled to and it goes into a legitimate account, like business account for my office, and I use that account to pay for anything or to make a payment for my children's vehicles, it all makes that part of what they can confiscate. So they took everything we own, try to put together a defense, try to hire an attorney, try to hire expert witnesses when you own nothing. It's, it's a little daunting to, uh, to put together a, a defense during the trial. Do they not trial leave nine any, days. So there's no money oh, left over to hire or pay for an attorney. Is that accurate? Meaning no. that with the civil forfeiture, I mean, it, it seems like your right to an attorney um, should be sacred. Um, but what you're saying is well, you, you can still get an attorney. It's just now you're indigent and you have to take what you're given. Is that, is that a fair right. statement? It would be an, it would be assigned to you as a public defender. Right. So you do have a right to one, but you, you get what you pay for, I guess, for yeah, lack of not any attorney. You have a right to an attorney, yeah. but not any attorney. Correct. Not of your choice. It's assigned. So, like I said, trying to put all that together and trying to get ready for the trial. And, you know, the interesting thing is the jury, the first three that I thought it would be all about the allegations, the 118 allegations of, of healthcare fraud. But the first three and a half days were all about our home and our vacations. And it made it look like I was all about the money. 
Right. And the jury is never aware of the amount that is involved. And to be honest with you, as I said, a bit busy Medicaid practice. So they did an evaluation over the course of six years because statute of limitations um, will allow you to go back six years. And during the six years, I was paid about three and a half million dollars for the work that I'd provided for the Medicaid patients. And right. of the three and a half million dollars, the the jury's never made them aware of the amount. So who knows how much they thought I got that I wasn't entitled to of the three and a half million dollars. But the prosecutors during sentencing actually established the amount. And the amount that they established that we got of the three and a half million dollars that I was not entitled to was $17,899.57. Repeat that again. Repeat that one more time. Uh, Of the three and a half million, the amount that mistake was what? The amount that the government established that I got that I wasn't entitled to was $17,899.57. And even though we were able to go back through that six-year period of time, and review and find treatment that we had actually had provided, should have billed for, and could have billed for, and been paid for in excess of that $17,000 amount, it made no difference. Meaning so, if you had actually um, had a complete and total accounting from beginning to end with expert right. spending countless hours doing nothing but correlating what was Crunching done with getting payment, mm-hmm. on the up and the down, the government would have actually, or Medicaid would have owed you owed more me, money. Owed me money, yeah. And they withheld limit for six months treatment that I'd actually provided in excess of that amount as well. This is a shocking story. Um, so they they conceded that at trial, correct? You said that at trial was a... They were bitching and moaning about seventeen thousand uh, dollars with a denominator yeah. of three and a half million. They they conceded that. Is that accurate? They they established that. It's yes. one of those things. It's for the government to establish the amount that I got that I wasn't entitled to before the judge to determine the amount that I got. We didn't refute it. We didn't say anything. We the number was probably accurate, $17,899.57. Right. We, we didn't refute that at all. It was their their responsibility to determine that amount, and they that's the amount that they determined. Well, these are men and women on a mission. Um, seems to be. You know, it's interesting. So I actually um, had eyeballed uh, what an expert had testified on your behalf. I believe her name was Dr. Susan Phillips, who was an insurance consultant with a claims review organization and she apparently yeah, she actually works yeah 20 years yeah, she works for insurance uh, yeah she was she is a professional who reviews claims yeah. for insurance companies to determine whether or not they should be appropriately paid or not yeah so yeah she was an expert for me well i'm, I'm looking at the quote that she supplied it's um to the press said i saw no pattern or scheme to defraud on and i'm very familiar with what to look for because we're reviewing claims and records for fraudulent or suspicious submissions is a routine part of my job. That's what she's stating. I mean, I would have thought with this support, you you must have felt pretty good about your chances at trial. Um, well, in, in fact, um, during sentencing, the, the judge actually determines the amount of time you're going to spend and the restitution that you pay. And going into sentencing, the pre-sentencing report establishes the amount of time, uh, maximum and minimum, that you can expect to be um, sentenced to. And going into sentencing, um, I minimum amount of time I would have spent was 15 years. 15 years. Um, 15 years, because of I was I was found guilty of healthcare fraud, racketeering, money laundering. When you add all those up, the minimum amount of time I would have spent from the pre-sentencing report was 15 years. Six days before I was to be sentenced, six days, the Supreme Court ruled uh, they defined a single word in the money laundering statutes, one word. It had gone through the system to get to the Supreme Court for their determination, I think about six and a half years. So it took six and a half years to for the Supreme Court to um review and to determine 
the definition of this word six days before I was to be sentenced, and my attorney read their determination, and he said, I think the way they define that word, it makes it so it doesn't apply in my case. So there was one um, one charge of healthcare fraud, one charge of racketeering, and five charges of money laundering. So if you get money you're not entitled to when it goes into a legitimate business account, any way you distribute the money is a different charge of of money laundering. So if you write a check, that's one way. If you pay by credit card, that's another way. If you pay by cash, that's another way. So any way money's distributed, it's uh, a different count. So there were five counts of um, money laundering, which was a major component. Six days before I was to be sentenced, the Supreme Court ruled on this word, and my attorney wrote a letter, a motion to the judge, asking the judge to set aside the money laundering statutes based or uh, convictions based on this Supreme Court decision that occurred six days before I was to be sentenced. Right. Going into sentencing, the minimum amount I was I was looking at, the best I could hope for was 15 years. And the judge started by saying that he was going to deviate from the mandatory. Well, first he he um, set aside the money laundering statutes based on the Supreme Court decision. He agreed with my attorney's argument. So that took the five money laundering um, charges off, right. which reduced the sentencing guidelines to 47 months, which is much better than 15 years. Telling, and man. the judge actually sentenced me to 24. He deviated below, and, and the law indicates that the judge can only do that if there's a significant reason for doing that. And I have a quote from the transcript from that sentencing, which the judge basically said he thought the verdict could have gone either way. He wasn't going to set aside the jury's verdict, but he would adjust the time spent. So he actually went from the 47 months to 24 months. Boy, your, your luck had turned, had it not, with this yeah. of events. Well, you know, there were there were providential things that happened through the whole process. Um, when I was being um, I, I had been arrested, had, was before the judge, and my attorney and the prosecutor prior to had come to an agreement, the terms of bail. And one of the stipulations the prosecutor made was that I wouldn't be able to practice dentistry. Right. So the judge, you know, they came in, we all stood, we sat down, he looked at the prosecutor and asked about the charges and the prosecutor outlined the charges. And then he asked about the terms of bail and the prosecutor outlined the terms of bail. And typically what would have happened, he would have looked at me and my attorney and said, are there any objections? And because that was the agreement that had been made prior to, we would have said, no, the gavel would have hit. My, my license would have been immediately confiscated, would have been mm -hmm. taken. But the judge, rather than doing that, the prosecutor said, we've asked for Dr. Shelburne to surrender his license of practice. The judge looked at the prosecutor and said, sir, does the Board of Dentistry of Virginia still exist? And the prosecutor said, yes. And the judge looked at the prosecutor and said, so you're asking me to supersede the power of another governmental agency who has been given the responsibility to determine whether or not individuals can practice appropriately in the state of Virginia. You're asking me to supersede that governmental agency. And the prosecutor looks at the judge and went, I, I guess. And the judge said, I'm not going to do that until the board acts on this man's license. He can practice dentistry. Perfect. So I, I was able to go back. And like I said, I, I continue to practice during that preparation time for the trial. Now, you um, also you'd also said that the area was there were a large there's a large demographic of Medicaid patients. Were you still able to see the indigent to see Medicaid patients in that window of mm -hmm. time? Or was that something that you weren't able to do? Till the day I surrendered my license, like I said, Medicaid had done the audits and they didn't have an issue. So okay. the government had encouraged Medicaid to do audits. They thought they would find issues and they would they would suspend my ability to be able to provide service to Medicaid. And they did the review, the Rail Dental, and they indicated that they didn't have any issues. So I was literally able to see Medicaid till the day I surrendered my license. So to the extent there were any billing issues, were they related to non-Medicaid patients? If Medicaid didn't um, have a beef with this. Yeah, they, they it, it was all Medicaid issues. It was government reimbursement. For example, right. one of the, there were 118 issues, and one of them was um, a billing issue. In 2005, there were two separate codes to be used for simple extractions of teeth. Okay. The 
there was one code for the first extraction, there was a different code for the additional extractions, and there was a, a cost a reimbursement differential of about two dollars and sixty four cents. So rather than using the code for the first extraction and then using the a correct code for the second and third extractions, we used the primary code for both first, second, and third, which resulted in payments of $2.64 more for the second, third. So did we get money we weren't entitled to? Yes, we did. Should we have had uh, ability to be able to identify and correct that and send that back? Yes. You know, from a legal standpoint, definition of intent to defraud was much different than I had believed. I thought you intended to fraud if you sent a claim for a patient you never saw for a service you never provided. Certainly that would be intent to defraud, but the legal definition is much broader, which includes what's considered blind disregard, which means if you do the same thing the same way without having systems to identify and correct your errors, that is from a legal standpoint considered intent to defraud. Didn't understand that. So I thought a simple mistake was a simple mistake. I always thought if I got something I wasn't entitled to, I could send it back with any interest or penalty. The best offer I ever got to settle prior to going to trial was three years in prison and a, prison and a restitution of $300,000. You know, that conclusion would come as a shock to the vast majority of people listening to this podcast right now. I think most people believe billing is something, I mean, you sending codes, you get paid, and that you do your best, you try to make sure it's reasonably accurate, and hopefully the documentation supports it. But I'm absolutely positive if you have 100 people listening to this podcast right now, and they're they're doing coding and billing, um, there's not a single person out there that will have a pristine record. I'm absolutely positive of that. We sent records to about 15 different practitioners in the area trying to identify expert testimony on my behalf. Every single one of them came back and said, there's not a thing you've done that hasn't happened in our practice. And something that's kind of shocking as well, I, I, I lecture a lot. So I'm around the country and I'll generally ask, um, how many of you have a seven-step compliance program in your practice? And there are people's eyes glaze over it. I've been in two different locations and I, I do several um, speeches a year, and I've had two individuals who raised their hand and said that, yes, they have the program. They have that compliance program in their practice. And I have asked both. I said, "How? what are the circumstances that you decided you needed to adopt those? And both of them were audited and found out that they needed. There's actually a mandated seven-step compliance program that if you accept government payment of any kind, it's expected that you have that in place. Otherwise, the argument could be made that you had blind disregard. You didn't have a system to identify and correct those errors. You know, participating in almost any government program, there are all there are all sorts of requirements that most doctors aren't aware of. Just to give one example, to be compliant with HIPAA, yes, you need to have a notice of privacy practices and you need to have um, the proper authorizations in place. But what I think most people are unaware of is that you need to do a formal risk assessment, a formal risk mm -hmm. assessment where you not only look at, well, you look at the procedures, you look at the training, you look at the computer systems. I mean, this is a very deep and involved process. And if you get hit with a HIPAA breach or a HIPAA audit and you don't have that document up front, you will burn. Um, but Absolutely. But what's fascinating is that when when the Office of Inspector General at Department of Health and Human Services did a just a general audit to see how many people were fully compliant with the dictates of HIPAA, it was in single digits, meaning that yeah, less, exactly. than, less than 10 percent were fully compliant, meaning that overnight. I mean, these are good people. They're good doctors mm -hmm. and they just don't know. They do not. Yeah, know. You're, you're you're preaching my message. What? What you do not will do, do not know will come back to bite you. Right. Ignorance is no excuse. You're it's not a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what I tell people. I, you know, they people say, "Well, that's never going to happen to me. I'm that guy." I, you know, that, those were my words. You know, honestly, if I ever got anything that I was entitled to, I'll be happy to pay it back with any interest or penalties. It's so you're talking about unfortunately. Yeah, processes and documentation, and just spend a couple minutes talking about. And it's a phrase I first heard from a plaintiff attorney, 
when he was describing uh, medical malpractice cases. And he said, and I know we've all heard it, it says, if it wasn't documented, it wasn't done. And, and this is a phrase mm-hmm. that sets doctors on fire, um, particularly physicians. They argue in response that they have time to take care of the patient or they have time to document, pick one. And, you know, having lived through what you lived through, I think mm-hmm. that you would argue that documentation is, mm-hmm. is, you have to do both. You can't just do one. It's key. Um, and I'll, I'll expand on what you said. If it's not in your clinical record, it was not seen, it was not said, it did not need to be done, it wasn't done, it does not exist from a legal perspective. There's no way you can defend yourself verbally without having made a notation in that clinical record because otherwise you're just covering your behind after the fact. Right. That is a legal document that will speak loudly and strongly on your behalf. It will literally testify for you in the event that you capture the information that's necessary. If you leave anything to the imagination, people can take it anywhere they want to take it. And, and to your point about malpractice, um, first thing that's going to happen if a patient makes a complaint to an attorney, what are they going to ask for? They're going to ask for the clinical record. Yes. And if it establishes what was done, why it was done, and step by step, um, the doctor's point of view, that attorney will not move forward with that case because that's a hard one to make. Right. So like they don't want to. Yeah, they don't want to have to work that hard. So Mm -hmm. to refute that clinical record by a patient's testimony, that's going to be very difficult to do. However, if there's anything left to the imagination in that clinical record, that can very readily be a case moving forward. Yeah. I mean, this is this is an amazing narrative. So ultimately, this came down to records, correct? I mean, your, your um, fate came down in many ways to, to the records. Well, um, establishing medical necessity in the clinical record, absolutely, and then billing issues um, accurately using the correct billing codes to get reimbursement. So it had a two-edged sword. Documentation to establish medical necessity, the need for the treatment, and then the billing that corresponds appropriately to the treatment that you actually provided. So So, both the billing as well as the documentation. So the documentation, the billing go hand in glove. Hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, One has to support the other. All right, so you make it to trial. at As the jury came back, did you have an idea how this would go? I mean, I'm sure you were hoping against – did this, this went to – you didn't plead it. You ultimately went to Mm-mm. the jury. No, the it, it went to the jury. Um, and both sides actually had testimony but also presented a significant amount of um, supportive information. Um, the jury actually went to a room and asked, for nothing, none of the evidence. They actually sat in the room and talked for about um, almost two days. Right. And they asked for nothing as far as supported documentation. And two hours before they came back with a verdict, they had a question for the judge. And they share that question with both the prosecution and with my defense team. And the question was if we find him guilty of racketeering and money laundering, do we have to find him guilty of healthcare fraud? Which was backwards. Yes. You have to have committed healthcare fraud before you could could have committed racketeering and money laundering. So it appeared that they didn't understand. They decided I was guilty of racketeering and money laundering, but they didn't, they hadn't de- decided whether or not I was guilty of healthcare fraud, which like I said, you can't do one without the other. Right. So that gave us a good idea that, yeah, it was going to be, it was going to be all negative. And to be honest with you, um, it had to be a jury trial and they had expert witnesses that testified. For example, um, we did a number of pulpotomies and stainless steel crowns on primary teeth. They had an expert witness that testified if a baby tooth were decayed to any great extent, it should be extracted, it shouldn't be restored. And my position is that child needs teeth to chew with, and those teeth hold space for the permanent teeth, so it's important that you maintain them. Their expert, a dentist, who said if tooth is baby tooth was decayed it needed to be extracted and you know for example you have a mother who's on the jury who uh, is working can't afford uh, dental insurance for the child they pay taxes so their tax money is paying this doctor to provide unnecessary treatment pulp out of the stainless steel crowns on these primary teeth 
and they can't even afford to take the children to the dentist to even have basic treatment done. And by the way, if they have a child with a baby tooth, they're certainly not going to get it filled. They're going to, they can't afford it. They're going to wait to have it extracted. So, you know, I was giving comprehensive care using their tax money with an expert witness, a dentist who said the tooth shouldn't be filled. It should be pulled. It's a baby tooth. So it's an uphill climb. Um, You know, convincing a, a patient who has an expert witness that testifies to one thing and our expert testifies to another. So it's up for them to decide what's right and what's wrong. And they have preconceived notions as, as individuals about the need for care. So like I said, it's, it's kind of an uphill battle. And to be honest a, with you, like I said, the, the first the two and a half. Yeah. Well, not to only that, but if you spend the first day and a half, two days talking about the dentist's lavish lifestyle, how, you know, you go on vacation, he lives in this house, so can't be doing that on the up and up. Who could do that? So, you know, they, they kind of set the stage prior to, and by the way, you know, he gets paid all this money for doing all this work. And by the way, our expert says it wasn't even necessary. So my documentation should have been um, better at supporting the medical necessity for those stainless steel crowns, why we did them. And, and like I said, should that have been the case, I think it would have perhaps change the outcome. Although, you know, it's one of those things I look back and it's woulda, coulda, shoulda, who knows. You you were in a community of less than 2000 people. Where, where was the federal trial held? How far was it from the community you lived and were there, I mean, it sounds like it was sparsely populated that there was a, it was highly possible or probable that you, the jury pool were people that you took care of or their kids? No, the way the jury system works is, well, there were there were 50 in the jury pool. They moved it from Big Stone Gap, which was the community closest to, to Abington, Virginia, which is about two hours away, mm. isolated it so that there weren't a whole lot of people that we were, I was familiar with. But as far as they, they started out with the jury pool of 50, and on the day before the trial comes, they bring all those 50 jurors in and the judge asked, does anybody know me or the prosecutor, anybody, the principals in the case? And they raised their hand and the judge would ask them questions. And um, if the judge felt like that the relationship was close enough that they couldn't be impartial, he dismissed them. So that automatically changed the 50 to 35. So of the 35, there were hygienist and chair side assistant with that group and the way you go from 35 down to 12 is the prosecution eliminate one then my um we uh, my team eliminate one and then prosecutor eliminates another and then we eliminate another the prosecution eliminated the hygienist and the chair side assistant number one and number two so they want nobody on the jury that knows anything about dentistry it'll be the same thing with medicine they don't want anybody with a a nurse or a doctor anybody who has any idea about um, the ins and outs of what we do. Right. Interestingly enough, um, even through this ordeal, you're one of the most upbeat persons I know. So how, how did you survive the ordeal of prison? What is life like inside a federal prison? What did you learn? How did you change? Yeah. I, I was in a prison camp, which is, it's certainly not a country club. Um, I, Generally, they will put you in a facility that's as close to your home as possible. And actually, there's uh, a facility that's about four miles from my home. The problem is there were people who worked at the prison who were patients of mine, and they figured that that would probably not be a good idea. I might get preferential treatment if I treated them well, or I might have been treated badly if I treated them badly. So they they, um, put me in a facility that's about two and a half hours away from home. There's a prison camp. Uh, there were no walls, there were no doors, no bars. You could literally walk away, but if you did try to escape, you would definitely go to a facility that had walls and, and doors. There were there were no violent offenders there. There were no sexual offenders. Um, literally, uh, we provided care and support for either the inmates in the, the camp or we maintained the medium security facility that was next door. So we washed windows, we cleaned floors, we did whatever's necessary to maintain. Um, and I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel threatened. I didn't feel scared. Um, it was, 
uh, a boring kind of waste. I started out sweeping floors, and then I was promoted to washing windows, and I ended up maintaining the the library, um, the books for the inmates to be able to check out and read. Um, and you know, I was I was isolated. I was out of the community, so. Um, 15% white collar, 85% nonviolent, um, drug offenders right. and spent 19 months there, two months in a halfway house. And literally it was much harder for my family. They were in the public. They, you know, the, the judgeful eye of the people that around them and, you know, people said things and, and it was ugly for them. It was much harder for them than it was for me. And that, that part. Um, you know, is is most disconcerting. It breaks my heart. Well, I'm sure in they terms came, of they must have visited you on a regular basis, and yeah, did they uh, let you know what was yeah. going? And were they telling you how the community was no. treating them, or did they keep that from no. you to, no. to to make it less painful for you? I mean, was this something that they just bore on their own, and you only really learned yes. about it once you got out? Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, um, my wife worked a short time for me when I first opened the practice and um, otherwise was a patient of practice but wasn't in and out. But she actually became my son's office manager and she spent every day in the office and occasionally patients would say something that would be hurtful and they may not have known it was she was my wife. And she was very gracious in the process. Um, I, I have an amazing family. They been loving and supportive and I can't say enough about their their love and their support which has made it possible for me to do what I've been able to do. Miracle, I, I was able to get my license back again. Um, um, I surrendered it voluntarily prior to going to prison, understanding that it was inevitable that that was going to happen and I did it prior to being incarcerated because it takes the whole um, board to act on a revocation and um, they would not meet until after I was released from prison and the mandatory period of revocation minimum amount was three years so if I waited till after I was released from prison it would have been three years from that point so I voluntarily surrendered it prior to going to prison so it started that clock ticking before I went in so I was able to reapply for my license in July of 2011 I'd been online to find out if anybody had actually gotten their license back again from a revocation nobody had ever had. So um, I didn't have a whole lot of hope that I would uh, have got my license back, but I'd done about almost 300 hours of CE, mandatory is 15 per year, so I, I needed 45, but I had about 300 hours of CE. I went to BCU to the dental school and spent 61 hours rotating through the different departments there so they could observe my knowledge and my ability to be able to provide care, to provide a letter to the board, encouraging them to reinstate my license. I took my boards over again after, um, what, 31 years? I can't even and imagine passed, that, actually. <laughs> passed them the second time. Actually, they were easier the second time. You have a lot of experience, so it's it's kind of like riding a bike. It's not hard to to be able to do that. And the board met on December the 1st of 2011 to act on my request for a reinstatement and they gave my license back. And in fact, the Dental Association, the American Dental Association, I got my renewal for my dues while I was in prison. They, you get those in November and I, I got the letter asking for the renewal and I sent a letter back to the uh, Association in Virginia, and I, I, you know, I said, you understand where I am, and I can't afford it, so I'm going to have to let my membership lapse. And I got a letter back from the director, Terry Dickinson, at the time, and the letter said, well, if and until you can um, pay for your dues, we'll comp those. So I remained an American Dental Association member even while I was in prison and while my my license was revoked because <laughs> did, I had a lot of support from speak? organized dentistry. Did they send the uh, journals to you in uh, while you were in mm -hmm. prison? And I would they think that would, be, that would be one thing to do to probably address. The, the reason I bring up the issue of boredom is that I do know, and I went to visit someone in a federal prison. It was a minimum security prison. And, you know, he said that the worst aspect of it, of course, other than losing your freedom, 
um, is the absolute and total boredom, uh, meaning that it, it we're used, yeah, we're used to being, you know, high charging, active people and it just gets flipped on its head. I mean, it, it is the ultimate torture for someone who is, you know, a type A obsessive compulsive individual now with nothing but time on their hands. Yeah. So I actually I, I taught some um, classes as far as spin classes on bikes and you know aerobics and I did whatever I could to stay busy. You probably were in good shape, I would imagine, by spending so much time on a, on a spin bike, <laughs> correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there was nothing else really to do. He looked the same way. I mean, he, when I went to visit him, I couldn't believe what excellent shape he was in. He said, well, you, you get a type A individual with nothing else to do. Um, it just gets filled. And I think it's a reflection it's, it's, of the type of personality that, you know, is just goes into the medical and dental world. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, we're all driven. We have uh, we have goals and we have things that we want to accomplish. And if you take the primary out of the way, you find something else to, you know, focus on. So what advice would you give for someone about to surrender and start a prison sentence in a federal penitentiary? Let's assume it's the same type of um, the camp that you were in, something that you have you know, personal experience with. Um, well, n- just to get ready for anything to, to, to go through life is that you have to, at some point, come to grips with it and forgive yourself what's happened's happened. You know, I, I have a quote that I like, a bend in the road is only the end of the road if you fail to make the turn. And it, does it take some time to get over it? It absolutely does, but you have to forgive yourself and you also have to forgive everybody that's associated with. Otherwise, it, it makes you miserable and angry and the only person that that helps is nobody. I mean, you would think it would be easy to be a victim or feel like a victim, but you've done a little bit different. I mean, I, I get the impression you took ownership of it and then flipped it on its head. I mean, you, you now actually go out and talk about this. You, it's mm-hmm. almost a cottage industry that you've created, delivering a very potent message to people. Don't do what I did. Let me show you how to do it. Mm-hmm. And while you may think you're different, you are like me and I'm like you. It's just that mm-hmm. I now have... I now have a message to deliver. Um, yeah, uh, so, I, I, who, I do. I, I have, I'm passionate about sharing the story, not because I'm proud of it, but because I think people can benefit from my experience. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I mean, that's how I met you initially. You, um, you're a very charismatic individual. You, you have a very upbeat personality. Um, and then I hear hear your story, and I'm trying. I've got a little bit of cognitive dissonance. It's hard for me to make the connection between what you went through and, you know, what you're doing now. You've turned a negative into a positive. And uh, I know you spend a lot of time speaking to people. I'm sure some people call you when they're in the middle of the crosshairs and probably people call you when they're just worried. But what is that Mm -hmm. like? Because I know you give you give advice, you teach, you educate. Talk a bit about that. No, I don't. I spend a lot of time both educating as far as lecturing and um, seminars, uh, webinars like these, um, you know, things, ignorance is, is scary. And, you know, I, I was that guy that was ignorant and I want to be the last healthcare professional that goes to prison because they're stupid. Um, and, you, you know, I, I get calls. Well, for example, I got an email on vacation last week from a young man who was being audited by an insurance company and um, wants to know what's the process like, what do they need to do. And of course, I'm not an attorney. I need to advise them first that I'm, I'm not an attorney, but I will address issues based on my understanding. And to be honest with you, a lot of times, especially if there's an action against a, a dentist, you know, they'll reach out to me and start spilling information and I have to stop them. I said, you understand you've contacted me. If it's not through an attorney, anything you tell me is discoverable. Right. And so, you know, people just don't know what they don't know. And as simple as, you know, you don't say anything to anybody. If you have an attorney, the attorney can contact and you can have that conversation and that's protected. That's attorney client privilege, but anything you share to anybody otherwise prior to can be used against you. 
if you're if you don't have the the proper um, uh, the protections prior to yeah yeah so you know it's just a matter of helping people through the process I'm not an attorney but I can give them an idea of of what this the process is like and to be honest with you the government entities they have a um, cookie cutter way of, of putting together the process and it's it's kind of interesting they they have a stage one stage two stage three and it's it's stage by stage the way they work it because that's the way it, it has been established and that's what you can look forward to in the future happening because they you know the same playbook you know your mantra seems to be take ownership of what happened and america is the land of second chances we are very forgiving people has that been your experience that you've had a second chance and that Americans are for, for forgiving people or, yeah. or, or more, more often than not, but not entirely. You know, and I, I, I've learned early on never to prejudge anybody and their ability to understand, for example, early on in the process, I was at a hotel in Washington and um, was, I struck up a conversation with the lady in the lobby and, you know, she asked me what I was here for. And I, I said, I'm here for a meeting. And I asked her what she was there for. And she said, well, she was here for a meeting too. And I said, she asked, well, what kind of meeting? I said, dental. And she goes, well, what classes are you taking? And I said, well, actually I'm teaching one. And she said, well, that's interesting. And um, wh where's your practice? And I said, well, I actually, I don't practice anymore. I speak, write and consult full time. I've retired from practicing. And she looked at me and she said, well, you're young to retire and I said well like what are you here for and she said um, I'm a federal judge from Texas hmm. and she went to the next place she goes well how is it that you you know don't practice anymore and I said well to be honest with you I am a convicted felon I was convicted of health care fraud racketeering and money laundering and I lecture trying to prevent the same from happening to my my colleagues and I expected her to turn and run with her hair on fire in the other direction she didn't she leaned in and she said really can you tell me a little bit more about that? And I said, sure. What would you like to know? And she come to find out, she said that she um, sentenced people fairly frequently and she never knew what that was about. So we had a 45 minute conversation about the experience. I had prejudged her, prejudged a lot of people. And, you know, of course, some of them, are they going to go dark? Of course they will. But, you know, I, I come to realize that people have an affinity and a desire and a curiosity to want to know to want to know more about it. Not everybody's judgmental. Now, there are people that are, of course, but I prefer to give everybody a um, clean slate to begin with and to understand that people are fundamentally good. And give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and and what's interesting, so the, the one individual that I referenced who was a spine surgeon spent time at a, um, at a minimum security prison in Alabama, I mean, his his main thought was he did not want this to be the last act in his career. He his thinking was this is a snapshot of his life. And by the way, it was a drug charge, so it had nothing to do with patient care. Mm -hmm. um, right. He was in there for three years, came back and he said he wanted his license back. And he was mm -hmm. a talented surgeon um, mm -hmm. and he felt like he had a lot more to give. And um right. Ultimately, he did get his license back. He had a, a very good attorney. This is in Florida, where he um, had been, um, where he had been working previously. And Florida is a, not an easy state to get your license back if it's um, if it's either revoked or surrendered, etc. But he was able to do it and actually get back. Um, he got hired. You know, he said, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not just a matter of getting your license. You still, the next step is you got to get a job, you got to get hired exactly. or you need, need mm -hmm. to get people to trust you if you're going to hang out a shingle. And of course, if you have competitors, everybody's going to point the finger and say, don't go to him, go to me because of X, Y, and Z. Um, sure. But, but it was very cathartic for him, I think, to get back into the rhythm of life. And you know, I think he, he struggled with it for a period of time, like many people would struggle. But But I think now that he's you know, he did his time and he got his license back. He feels as if he has a lot to give and he wouldn't have chosen that path, but he said, oh, absolutely. Uh, having gone through the path, he did not want that to be the end of the road as you described. Correct. No, that's, that's not who I am. It's something that happened to me, 
And I think that's something important for most people to realize. What has happened to you is not who you are. That helps to shape who you are, but it in no way establishes you, who you are, your expectations, or your limitations. There's an interesting analog for in the for medical malpractice where you know if you're in the middle of a malpractice case it's it is a snapshot it's not a movie for most people i mean the vast majority of physicians surgeons when you practice for an entire career you will make a mistake you'll make a mistake that can be construed as being negligent and when you're mm -hmm. in the crosshairs you'll be painted out to be a horrible ogre a horrible human being and it's demoralizing it's depressing it's a type of thing that carries with it a lot of shame. And one thing we try to do is remind people that it's one event in a lifetime, you know, a full career. I mean, if, if this happens all the time, that's a different story. But for the vast majority right. of people who have made a mistake, it, it's not a pattern. It's a it's a single event or a couple of events. And it's a mistake, I think, to conclude that that's what your entire life is is about what your entire life is worth but you know when you're in the when you're in the middle of the legal system it's it's in it's easy to forget very difficult yeah, to, uh, to when, keep your bearing when people are pointing at you and pointing out every possible negative thing that could be construed whether it be true or not if they're for example you know you mentioned at the onset that i volunteered as a missionary to honduras and i did and, you know, during the course of the trial, you try to establish that you're a decent human being. So we brought that out. So prosecution, I met with uh, the group that went to Honduras in New Orleans, spent a night there, both coming and going so that I could make the early flight, meeting them to go from New Orleans to Tegucigalpa, which is in Honduras. And it became the prosecution's turn to refute or to uh, come against everything we said, and they flashed a, a picture of the hotel that I stayed with, stayed at in New Orleans, which was the W Hotel, and I'm a cheap guy, so I did it Priceline, and I may have paid $98 for the hotel, but anyway, they flashed a copy of that and the, about the hotel, and the, the prosecutor looked at me and said, this is the hotel that you stayed in? I said, yes. Did you deduct the trip? Yes. You make it look like you're a humanitarian, but look at this lavish hotel you stayed at, deducted it as a donation, and you want people to believe that you are all about giving back. <laughs> it's a no-win situation there. <laughs> it really is. None whatsoever. Yeah, no. And, and by the like way, I've stayed at the W before, and I wouldn't say they're all lavish hotels. At least that would be my no, experience. I remember one time <laughs> I stayed there, the walls were paper thin, and it was about one in the morning, and I heard a fair amount of commotion on the other side. Um, it seemed like they were having a wonderful time, actually, but I couldn't get any shut eye. So, Oops. Yeah, oops, there yeah. you go. Now, people can twist anything to make it look like anything they want to, and ultimately. And that's that's the scary part, is that you can spin anything the way you want to. It's just a matter of knowing who you are and why you did things. Could well, I have right. gone dark? I'm, I'm sorry. I could have. But I, 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 you know, I knew why I did it. I, I knew my, my heart. I knew why I was providing care to those young people, because they needed it and they deserved it not because any other reason. It just seems irrelevant that you stayed at a hotel prior to doing missionary work. It's It just seems insane. Listen, we're running short on time, um, and we're going to close up shortly. You've got a strong message to give. Why do you think some doctors ignore the message, and why wouldn't they want to take action before there's a problem? Uh, because they bury their head in the sand. It couldn't happen to me. You know, I, I, why would anybody care about what I did? You know, I, I was as far from the capital of Virginia, Richmond, as you possibly could be in the state. So, and you know, the argument could be, do I'm, I'm so isolated. But um, in today's world, both medical and dental software is such that we undergo continuous audits. Insurance companies look very closely at our submissions 
histories, their um, trends, so that they understand if we fall outside of what they consider the norm, it puts a red flag over our heads, regardless of where you are. You're, 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 in today's world, nobody's isolated. So a lot of people look at it and go, you know, I don't think anybody's going to look at me. Why would they care about me? I'm in the middle of Podunk, Egypt. I, nobody knows who I am. In today's world, nobody is isolated. We're all out there. So the argument could be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little guy. I'm just doing my own thing here. I'm doing it because I love my patients. In today's world, things can be made to appear any way that they care to make them appear. So like I said, it's a matter of having systems in your practice to be able to identify and correct errors as is required and your documentation should be bulletproof. Ounce of prevention, uh, an ounce of prevention equals a bound to cure then. Exactly. Exactly. Roy, how can a professional get in touch with you to learn more about who you are and what you do? Um, email would be great. Um, I, I spend a lot of time on the road, but in today's world, we can always have access to email. Email is my name, Roy Shelburne, R-O-Y-S-H-E-L-B-U-R-N-E, at gmail.com. Okay, Roy Shelburne at gmail.com. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And you have a website also, do you not? I do. It's www.royshelburn.com. Perfect. Any final thoughts, things that we haven't touched on yet? Oh, good question. Um, you know, be careful. I, I, a lot of people who speak say they, they don't want to scare you. I'm not that guy. I want to terrify you, but I also want to be able to give tools that you can implement to make sure that you can protect and defend yourself. You only need to be fearful if you choose not to act. So have a healthy concern for what you could be in the crosshairs for, but understand ignorance is no excuse. Understand what you need to establish and maintaining your practice. And if that's the case, you'll be fine. Since everybody's going to be in the crosshairs, just show up with your vest. Is That's the take-home message. And it's a powerful one. Absolutely. Listen, Absolutely. thanks so much for joining us today. And I appreciate just getting to know you. You've got um, a very strong message and upbeat attitude. And I hope we get a chance to speak again on the podcast. So thanks again for yeah, joining Thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633 Seven, eight. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. 
Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.